Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. We'll continue with our discussion of the Krishna Sandarbha of Srila Jiva Goswami from the 28th Anacheda. Uh, 28th Anacheda basically has four subsections, but the main thrust of the 28th Anacheda is dealing with the grammatical presentation of the uh, the verse iti chamsa kala pumsa krishnastu bhagavan swayam indrani vyakulam lokam ridayanti yuge yuge of course the main section of it krishnastu bhagavan swayam is as we heard in our last discussion it stands on its own separate so in last week's discussion when we got to this 28th Anucheta, we were presented with some basic understanding of the, the Sanskrit uh, of the verse itself and how the one section, Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam, stood on its own separately. So we're going to go on to the next section of Srila Jiva Goswami's explanation of the verse and there's three sections altogether we'll try to cover all three of them they mostly deal with the syntactical and other uh, Sanskrit underpinnings of how Jiva brings out the significance of the verse through the grammatical presentation of the verse by Sutta Goswami. So this evidence that he's presenting here is is mostly technical Sanskrit. The, it, the verse was presented by Sutta Goswami in this manner. It ties in with the other verses in this manner. And so a lot of detailed stuff there. What we'll come away with is a little a greater appreciation, of course, of Sanskrit itself, and also the fact that it gives us some insight into the nature of the Sandarbha presentation in the context of the audience that Jiva was writing for. These Sandarbhas were presented 500 years ago in a very educated community of Vedantists and Transcendentalists and, and Gaudias also. But, and although he says in the very beginning it's for Gaudias, these Gaudias were scholars of that time. A little different than the audience that Krishna, Krishna Das, Kaviraj Goswami was writing the Chaitanya Charitamrita for, which is also pretty technically oriented. If you look at the, especially the Adi Leela, and there's a lot of detailed spiritual knowledge there, but it's presented in a way that can be easily apprehended by the Bengalis of the day. Not a lot of detailed Sanskrit there, although there were verses quoted, of course, from Scripture, and some verses by Krishna Das himself were presented in Sanskrit. 
basically it's it's a Bengali presentation for a broader audience. So we just some historical context there that we must understand that Jiva had an audience that could appreciate what he had to say, especially in like these verses we're going to read tonight. We're going to go, what exactly is that? So we'll go through them and we'll come away with a little bit of an understanding here of he's making some pretty heavy points here, but as far as this evidence, what he's what he's basing it on is this was written, this was presented by Sutta Goswami in Sanskrit and the way he's, it's very particular, the words he uses and the way he used them. And because of that specificity that Sutta Goswami used, we can understand and we can only understand this meaning if we know anything about the Sanskrit language. Krishna is not an avatar of the Purusha. One should not doubt this conclusion on the plea that Krishna is also listed among the avatars. A lot of pounding of the post here again. We're going to hear the same thing. Such an allegation is dispelled by the hermeneutical principle among prior and succeeding injunctions the former is weaker like prakriti the fundamental part of a yajna or ritual which is overridden by the atonement process vikriti jamini sutra so imagine his audience is understood Oh, Jamini Sutra. Oh, you're talking about a sacrifice. Okay, the this part of the sacrifice, the prakriti, is the fundamental part or of the ritual. You know, um, it'll come, become a little bit more apparent as we go. For example, in the description of the Agnistoma Yajna, so he's using a sacrifice as his example here for to make his point. And basically the point is this. It's simple. That the former statement was what? Well, the 23rd and 24th avatars are Krishna and Balaram. So that's his, that's a former statement. We heard that first. And now we're up if we go on in the same chapter of the, you know, the, Bhag- the Bhagavatam Sutta goes on and further on he's, he comes to this 28th verse in the third chapter of the first canto and he, he says, Iti chamsa kala pumsa krishna stu bhagavan swayam. So the fact that Krishna was an avatar put him in one class. Well, he's, he's just like all the other avatars. He's an avatar of the Purusha because the verse started out with the fact that all these avatars were coming through the Purusha. In the very first verse of the chapter, the discussion is there that, well, first the point is made that the Purusha is coming from Bhagavan, 
So all the avatars are coming through the Purusha. The Purusha is coming from Bhagavan. So then Krishna is listed amongst all those avatars until we get up to this. Then he says, and the other avatars that I didn't mention are unlimited. Just like an unlimited source of water, an unlimited lake has unlimited streams coming from it. So this is just a sampling of some of the water that's coming out of the sun. You know, a few a few avatars tars to give you give you a place to understand that Krishna is constantly flooding the universe with his presence in order that humanity can benefit by his association. Yes. One thing I thought of too is that's like on our end, like he comes once in a day and he's coming as this person and that person, but like for the, the time sequence, like in the heavenly planets and up above, like one moment of, you know, the demigods is so many years of ours. Mm -hmm. So it's, he's even coming more frequently than it appears. Right, level. because we're we're we are. That's a nice point. We are we are relating to a Bhagavatam presented for us. So yeah, Bhakti Rasa's point is very well made. That what about how many times is he coming in the heavenly planets for how long? And the other, I mean, it's so countless. So. First, Krishna is one of the list, then the list is unlimited, although I gave you some, there's an unlimited list. And then, in addition to that, he also infuses his vibhuti, his different potencies, in order to keep things going. To the Manvantaras, to the Devas. So, those were former statements. And now we're up to this verse, and the, ver the verse that we're used talking about here is the 28th verse of the third chapter where it says Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. So Jiva's saying, so let's look at the verse in hermeneutical, you know. <laughs> and what we can see here is because of that, what is it, Herma, hermeneutical principle that something that comes before is less significant than what's spoken later. And then, as his proof of that, he goes to, like in a sacrifice, he, he uses the example of a sa fire sacrifice or a sacrifice here, and the one he's using is what? The uh, Agnistoma Yajna. In the Shruti, it is stated. And then we get this information regarding what happens when you're doing one of these yagnas, one of these yag, you know, what what happens if something goes wrong? So this is what state. Then it, then there's a quote here explaining what 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 happens if 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 something something isn't conducted properly during this sacrifice. If the ugata priest falters, then perform the yajna without offering a gift 
dakshin, to the priest. However, if the pratihata priest falters, then perform the yajna by offering everything in dakshin. If it should so happen that both of them, the ugata, as well as the pratihata, falter, then what is to be done? In one case, withhold dakshin because the priest faltered. In the second case, give everything that was collected for the yajna as dakshin if the other priest falters. What if they both falter during the sacrifice? They both make a mistake, is the point. Of course, in the commentary, and I'm not going to go there, all this all these different priests are explained in their functions, how they follow in a row of ants and, you know, unless you want to, it's, it's a quite a detailed thing. I mean, these sacrifices, they took this seriously. They took sacrifices as seriously as the businessmen on Wall Street take the price of commodities and, and stock and trade in, in corporations because the result was looked at in a similar manner. If you look to the, to the businessmen of the world who collect in, in the major metropolitan areas, New York and you know San Francisco and Chicago, all these different trading centers where they buy and sell companies and buy and sell commodities. And you know, there's, it's a serious business. The bell rings and they're all there. You know, it's it's like a sacrifice. They're all there on the trading floor, and you know, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll sell it for this. You take it. I'll, take, you know, buying back and forth in a continual frenzy from the time the bell goes off at the beginning of the day until the bells rung at the end of the day. They're they're frenzied in doing their business. Why? Because they want the fruits of that endeavor. In earlier times, the same desire to enjoy the fruits of endeavors were there, but it was in an entirely different plane. It was like, let's perform a sacrifice, collect all the ingredients, get the best, get the very best, well, in the, in the modern age, it would get, hire the very best ex chief, chief executive officers that you can get to run your corporation, right? So they do that. You have a, a Lee Iacocca that comes in and takes a faltering uh, General Motors and puts it back on its feet again and starts making money with a company that was about to go or was already bankrupt. He walks in, oh, well, pay him some money. They paid him a lot of money. Now the money they paid him would be just pennies to the billions that some of these millions upon millions of dollars they pay for in a year's salary to one corporate officer. I'm using this only as a matter of, of giving, a, giving us an idea of uh, an example of, so you want the best man for the job. Like at one time they saw Apple was going down the tubes because Jobs couldn't do the job. So they brought in another Pepsi guy. They brought in the head of Pepsi and he took over and they kicked Jobs out.
problem one, he's, he was a great, great manager. He put the put the financial legs back under Apple, got the company running again. But the problem was he was not a uh, an innovator, which is what that particular corporation was all about: innovation in computer computer technology for the for the person, for an individual person. So Jobs, whatever happened, he got back in there and because the, the company went, became stagnant. So you get the very best priests that you can. You get the very best corporate officers. It's the same thing, except they know they can perform a sacrifice by the performance of a sacrifice Get a good wife, get a good job, go to the heavenly planets, you know, whatever material material benefit you want, it's the same thing. It's this, you know, it's just, theirs is a little bit more subtle, a little bit easier to pull off. The result's the same. I mean, why run a corporation and buy and sell and put together products and all this when all you can do is you can just get the very best priests priests together, get the ingredients, light a fire, and voila, there you are. You're now the richest person in the world, or whatever your desire may be, provided the priests don't falter. Well, what happens if they falter? Well, in this particular sacrifice, if that one falters, then you don't give anything away. He does no doxing. You messed up, no duck sheen. Oh, but what if the other one falls? Oh, give all the duck sheen away. Everything that's collected, give it all away. What happens if they both falter? And this is where the analogy comes in. The two opposing atonements show what, what would happen if both faltered. The Ugata, Udgata, as well as the Pratihata falter then what is to be done? The two opposing atonements, not giving dakshin, giving all dakshin, not offering dakshin and offering everything in dakshin, cannot be executed simultaneously. I mean, you can't, how do you, what's the solution then? Because the, you know, there's, there's rules and regulations for trading on Ross, Wall Street. You don't want to get caught doing insider trading there it's not allowed knowing something that's going to happen in a company so there's also rules and regulations for doing sacrifices so what when you have a conflict what do you what happens so on the basis of the above hermeneutical principle it is the latter atonement alone that is concluded to be the right course of action. So these are injunctions for a sacrifice. So give everything away. If both the priests falter, you follow the second. You don't withhold dakshin, but you give all dakshin. Whoever. You know when you have from the Bhagavatam, we hear different sacrifices and they gave they gave to the priests, they gave to everyone. They gave to the brahmanas, they gave to 
common citizens got prashadam. I mean, everybody got gifts when a sacrificial performance was undertaken. So it was a that kind of an affair. So that's that's what Jiva's using as an example. Listen, this is written down here that in in the Jamini Sutra, this is what happens at a sacrifice. So we can apply this to the fact that the latter, the fact that you know the latter instruction is you give every way everything away in dakshin. You give all the dakshin. If both falter, you give everything away. So that instruction carries more weight, and it came later in the instructions regarding the various priests, priests and you know what happened if they faltered. The same principle was be, Jiva goes on. The same principle is to be applied here. Krishna is first counted among the avatars, and later he is identified as Swayam Bhagavan. Of the two, the latter statement takes precedent. That's one of Jiva's arguments, and he uses this statement regarding an agnistoma sacrifice as his evidence. The, proce- the procedural statements of what you do when you got two faltering priests. Uh, there's for those that are interested in sacrificial. There's detail here that you can certainly read when you talk about just the priests entering the sacrificial arena. <laughs> they walk in like a row of ants in sequence, sequential order. The advaryu is the is succeeded by the prastota, udgata, pratihata, brahmana, brahma, and yajnamana, the host or sponsor of the sacrifice. So when the sacrifice starts, everybody marches in, and they have to come in this order. This priest, that priest, this priest, and then the, the sponsor, the person that's putting it on, paying the bill. That's one reason that we can accept Krishna as Swayam Bhagavan. One reason based on the semantics of the presentation of the third chapter, the first canto of the Bhagavatam is presented by Sutta Goswami to the sages of Namasharanya. A direct statement overrides the context. Let me give you another one, just so we so we make sure that Krishna's two Bhagavad Swayam, that this, is, this stands. Alternatively, the statement, Krishna, however, is Bhagavan himself, is validated by the hermeneutical principle that a direct statement, Shruti, overrides the context, Prakarana, which in this case is concerned with the avatars. An example of the application of this principle is found in the commentary of Sankaracharya on Vedanta Sutra. Interesting, using Sankaracharya's commentary on the Vedanta Sutra as an evidence <laughs> to the fact that we accept Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam. <laughs> To us, it's humorous. 
So Jiva continues. This is what Sankaracharya wrote in his Vedanta Sutra commentary. Because a direct statement, Shruti carries greater authority than the context, prakarana, there is no contravention of the fact that these fires, manak, sitchit, and so on, are independent of ritual action, kriya, being associated with knowledge, vidya, itself. This gets even more technical. But Jiva wrote it, so we'll read it, try to understand a little of of what, why, I mean, why Jiva's using it is the fact that he's saying the Sanskrit of the statement Krishnas to Bhagavan Swayam is presented as Shruti, a certain Sanskrit presentation, Shruti. Now we'll go over through the commentary a little bit of that. It's, it's interesting that all the different kinds of statements as presented in Sanskrit in the commentary gives us like an introduction to that. And then why Shruti, of course, is your most powerful, the most powerful statement you can make. So when you see certain certain combinations of words and the way they're presented, you can understand this is a Shruti statement. So, and because Sankaracharya said Shruti statements carry greater than authority than a statement that's only meant presented in context which is another way that we can look at a statement and understand the uh, weight of the statement, the, the evidentiary weight that a statement carries. Sankaracharya comments that the Shruti statement, all these are built up through knowledge alone and not through ritual actions overrides their subsidiary nature determined by the context of being included within the scope of ritual action. Rather, this direct statement establishes their independence in the form of being built up or united through knowledge alone. The same principle is to be applied here. Although Krishna is listed as the 20th avatar and is thus included within the context of the avatars, his characteristic of being an avatar is overridden by the direct statement, Shruti, Krishna alone is Bhagavan himself. Now in relationship to what Sankaracharya's statement on the Vedanta Sutra is, uh, is saying, just to understand that, what, what Sankaracharya is saying that the actions that one takes are less important than the knowledge with which one performs actions. So, makes sense. I mean, just to do something, like to do a ritual, light a fire, just to light the fire, which is an action, kriya, is not as important as knowing why, what's, you know, the, the underlying knowledge of the performance of, say, a sacrifice. 
Now, I didn't go and research the Pacific Vedanta Sutra verse that this commentary was made on, but just from the way this is presented, we, we can kind of uh, infer <laughs> that we're talking about the fact that simply gathering materials or performing actions is not as an does not carry as much weight as knowing what you're doing or the having a knowledge having knowledge as the basis of an action is not as, is much more important than the action itself that's basically Sankaracharya's statement, right? Just doing something is not as important as knowing why you're doing something. Now we see that even in the context of of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Uh, well, I'm sure it goes beyond that, but we can see that in the context of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, where simply when the pure devotee has the intent to perform some action, and he doesn't even do it. His intent alone carries as much significance, if not more, than actually doing it. And Swami Tripurari has in his classes a few times used the example of our Srila Prabhupada inviting Bhakti Rakshak Sridhardev Goswami to lay the cornerstone uh, was the Mayapur temple? Yeah. yeah. So he invited Bhakti Rakshak Sridhardev Goswami, please come lay this cornerstone with me. I need your blessing to, for this to, to be a successful project. So he came, he fed him, he put him to rest after he ate, and then Prabhupada went down in the hole and laid the cornerstone <laughs> while Bhakti Rakshak Sridhardev Goswami <laughs> is resting. So um, Prabhupada was asked, I think, by uh, Sridhar Swami's servant at the time, Govinda Maharaj, uh, uh, what's going on here? You invite my guru to lay the cornerstone and then you go and do it while he's taking rest. Did, is that a slight? Of, well, I mean, you know, you can understand the disciples saying, what the heck is going on here? And, and Prabhupada said, no, the fact that he was willing to come and do it and that he showed up is as significant as his, his actually performing the action. So, um, and so here, like, Shruti, he compares Shruti to the direct statement of yes. it, or like just the doing of it. Direct yeah, the direct statement, the knowledge. So that'll come out here in, in the... Oh, in the other is Kriya, like the direct... Yeah, okay. action, yes. Consequently here also, also in the context of the discussion of the avatars, so Sutta Goswami's discussing the avatars, Sutta Goswami did not use the word Bhagavan for any other avatar, but did so only in reference to Krishna. Bhagavan removed the burden of the earth. That's in the twenty. Uh, 23rd verse when Krishna and Balaram were mentioned the word Bhagavan was present hence his inclusion in the list of avatars is because of the fact that although he is Bhagavan himself and is ever situated in his own intrinsic nature 
he sometimes becomes visible to the world at large, nourishing a special sweetness through his divine play, Leela, such as taking birth in order to bestow unique, astonishing bliss upon his personal associate. His being Bhagavan is thus stated as follows in the Brahma Samhita. Then <clears throat> Jiva Goswami quotes from the Brahma Samhita. I worship Govinda, the original Purusha, who, being situated eternally in forms such as Rama, through partial limitation of his complete power, Kala Niyamena, avatarically descends in these various forms into the fourteen worlds. When, however, Krishna himself appears in the world, he does so in his very own self-nature, Swayam, as the Supreme Person, Paramapuman. Jiva Goswami continues, The term avatar means to become visible within the material creation. Since Sri Balaram is mentioned in connection with Sri Krishna in the 23rd verse of the 3rd chapter, he too transcends the classification of being an amsa of the Purusha. In the statement, Krishnastu Bhagavan Swayam, the word too, however, indicates that Bhagavan is distinct from the amsas and kalas of the Purusha and also from the Purusha himself. Alternatively, by the word too, the shruti or expressed statement is understood as definitive. Thus, by the principle, the definitive shruti is stronger than other statements. Even if Mahanarayan and others are referred to as Swayam Bhagavan, it, certain statements of the shruti itself, this is to be understood in a secondary sense by, version, by virtue of the above direct statement, being Krishnastu Bhagavan Swayam. This, all this is going to come to a, when we get to the next Anucheta, a lot of, of this is going to be reinforced. We're going to have some deeper knowledge of understanding specifically, and I haven't read the whole Anucheta, it's also extremely large and ex there's many, many subsections, but I got so far as to see that we're going to be introduced to some ideas that are there um, and presented by Madhva Acharya. There, they, it's a lot of this that we're hearing now is going to play into that understanding of of Madhva Acharya. They have an entirely different viewpoint when it comes to the Supreme Lord and his various manifestations, an entirely different viewpoint than we as Gaudiya Vaishnavas have. So not only is the Madhva viewpoint on the nature of the Jiva, the Jivas being either goodness Jivas, passion Jivas, or ignorance Jivas, that only the goodness Jivas have the possibility of attainment of liberation and the others do not, but their viewpoint on the nature of the Supreme Lord 
is very much more, well, let's just say, it's far from as nuanced as the Gaudi understanding. Plain vanilla, as opposed to <laughs> Baskin and Robbins. In the opening verse of this chapter, 131, Sutta Goswami used the two words Purusham and Bhagavan. Well, in the concluding verse of the section, 1328. Now, 1328 is the concluding verse on the section of the third chapter, not the whole third chapter. The third chapter goes on. But the 28th verse concludes the presentation and the response to the question of the sages in regards to the avatars of the Supreme. So we can look at the 28th verse as kind of like a stopping point in the middle of the chapter. And therefore, the beginning and the ending statements in regards to that one inquiry conform to each other. And we've already kind of touched on the fact that that's, that's of the nature of a literary presentation also, that the, the beginning and ending statements correspond. While the concluding verse of the section, he uses the two words Pumsa and Bhagavan. Because the word Pumsa is a synonym for Purusha, and because the word Bhagavan is identical, Sri Sutta here reminds us that these are the very same two words employed earlier. To dispel all obstacles to clear understanding, the learned use the same or equivalent words in their opening, Udesha, and concluding statements, Pratiti, Pratinirdesha. For example, in the section that deals with the topics of Jyotistoma, in the injunction, in each spring worship by Jyotis, the word Jyotis refers to the Jyotistoma sacrifice. Definitely an audience different than ourselves. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't know that this is a sacrifice we do in the spring. It's not. In the commentary, we can get a little bit more information. I'll just read a couple, a couple points here. Sri Jiva Goswami offers an additional line of reasoning for overriding this, the statement that Krishna is an avatar. So he's giving us more reasoning. Here we go. To this end, he points to another sutra from Purva Mamamsa, which states, now remember, Purva Mamamsa is what comes after. After you're done with Karma Mamamsa, then we go to Purva Mamamsa. You've already exhausted your material possibilities for enjoyment and realized there's, there's nothing else to do. I've done it all, been there, done that, and I still can't enjoy myself. So now let's, is there something beyond? So if there's something beyond, then we, then we have to go beyond. Um, when direct statement, 
Shruti, inferential mark or word meaning, linga, sentence or syntactical connection, vakya, context or interdependence, pakarana, position or order of words, stana, and name, samakya, are present simultaneously. Each member is progressively weaker in interpretative force because of increasing remoteness from the meaning. Jamani, J Jamini Sutra. So, again, <laughs> we're looking to, if you're looking to the, the, the evidentiary weight or the, the true meaning of something, well, a direct meaning is, of course, the best. And then we have all these other meanings like uh, linga. So a little bit of an explanation of these to help us see why the statement is so strong. Because the statement Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam is a Shruti type of statement. So, Linga inferential mark refers to the power of a world to denote an object or idea. So you have a direct statement, Krishna's to Bhagavan Swayam. You can also have a statement where you can infer the power of the word to denote an object. How, how much of, a, of an understanding can be had by this inferential mark. The power of a word, the power is the word's conventional meaning. What do you generally think of? That's linga. So what do you think of when you hear, hear a particular statement? What comes to mind? So Shruti is the most powerful. It's a direct statement. Then you can hear another kind of statement and it brings a thought to mind. But it's not like, it's not a definitive statement. Shruti is a definitive statement. Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So a Linga is, would be a less, it's something you may think of. You can't refute Shruti. It's just there. It's law. So the next kind of statement would be something where you could derive your understanding from what's, what's the conventional meaning? What's it generally mean? The meaning could be different from one group of people to another, from one individual to another. So it's not as strong as a, sh a statement of Shruti. Isn't it called a lingam? Linga. Linga. Like linguistic. Right. Conventional meaning. Then a vakya, sentence, is a, con is a connected utterance. It is the pronouncing together of two or more words expressing principle and subsidiary meanings. What do you think of when you hear Krishna? 
would be we could take Krishna, the word Krishna, as as like a linga. What do you think? Well, we're sitting in, in, in a sangha of Gaudiya Vaishnavas. We automatically think the supreme personality of Godhead. What if we were sitting in a group of Sri Vaishnavas and said Krishna? What would they think? As an avatar of Narayan. So that gives us some idea of of linga. The word God, in our context, if you say the word God to a mixed group of people, we'll think of Krishna, or they'll think of Jesus, or Jesus. right. And then, what's an example of Yaka? Um, how a words, how it's expressed in a sentence. You get your meaning from how the word is used in the context of a of a vakya, a sentence. Uh, the sentence, the sentence gives you the understanding. Uh, pakarana context entails uh, interdependence, expect expectancy, or the mutual need for complementary complementarity that's probably the way you pronounce that then stana position in proximity to of location and samakya name is a word understood in its derivative or etymological sense which can be of two types either based on the veda or colloquial. The difference between Shruti and Samakya is that Shruti suggests, Shruti supplies the conventional meaning, Rudi, while Samakya is based on the word's etymology. Detailed knowledge just of the fact that Shruti all this is to bring us to the conclusion that Shruti carries more weight than all these other kinds of other approaches whereby we can understand the meaning of words. So the Shruti statement is the most powerful. All the others are less powerful. Therefore, because the statement Krishna Stu Bhagavan Swayam is a Shruti, now, how is it a Shruti? There's a whole linguistic background to the fact that it's a Shruti. Isn't it like when, uh, when the devotees speak, it's a Shruti, actually? So, Sutta Goswami doesn't Sutta Goswami. This also is giving us some insight into Shruti, is also the way a Shruti statement is also a way it's, it's, it's presented in Sanskrit. So it go, we say Shruti, when we think of Shruti, we say, well, the word of God, we could say. It's coming, it's a, like a pronouncement. There's no question about it. It's, a, it's an affirmative statement. So Shruti, Smriti, Puranadi. Smriti is a little less powerful because the sages are giving an explanation of the sh Shruti according to their revelation. But if we go back to the to the Tattva Sandarbha, we can see there's a real gray area between 
Shruti and Smriti. Now what's creating the gray area? Because it's revelation. <laughs> so really which is more powerful? What Krishna says about himself or what Krishna's devotees say about him? Well then we get into <laughs> well this is then you get really esoteric. Well really Krishna's got to put more weight behind what his devotees say about him than what he says about himself. So from the Gaudiya perspective, when you bring in Rasa and when you bring in the, the whole subtlety of the, of the nature of the loving relationship between the Lord and his devotees, it becomes, it becomes a whole new wonder than just Oh, well, that's a, a statement of Shruti, or this is a statement of, of uh, Shmriti. We'll stop here. I'm glad that we're just focused on hearing from the Acharyas and, and trying to relish the philosophy. All this cultural presentations made from a Vyasa sign to influence the opinions of devotees and sway the opinions one way or another. We just want to be a, a devotee of Krishna. If we concentrate on the principles and understand and concentrate on understanding this, the core knowledge, that's enough for, for lifetimes. And all the other stuff, the baggage that we're carrying will naturally fall away. We don't have to beat people up about it. We don't have to try to force our agenda and our perspective on the way that this or that or another thing. It's already been laid out. Rupa Goswami's given us the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Here's 64 ways you can perform devotional service. He's given in the Upadesh Amrita how to look at other devotees, the do's and the don'ts. And, and what what is a true sadhu? All these things are simply explained in an easy manner. I understand it's difficult to bring Krishna consciousness into the modern age, but the way some people are trying to do it, in my estimation, is it's a detoured approach that I don't know if they're going to be able to take the devotees back on the main road. <laughs> so... I'm, I appreciate you coming to these classes and hearing this detailed knowledge. We may have a hard time assimilating it all, but at least we're we're focusing on on some bandhagyan in a way that I think will really nourish spiritual growth, even if we don't understand any of it. At least we're we're in good association with Jiva Goswami's words. Any questions? So I just want to be clear that. In this last argument, he's he's using the word shruti with almost like a like a small cap like a small s versus the cap v shruti. He's saying that there are certain statements in that are shruti statements. That are shruti type statements that are that we can determine. Effect. Yeah, yeah beca because of the way they're presented in Sanskrit. But he's not making a broader argument that that well there is an argument elsewhere that this is that the 
Bhagavad Purana is Shruti, but this that's not his argument here. He's just talking about different types of statements that are yeah. in Sanskrit. And then the broader argument is what we, what we touched upon. What's more significant? Mm-hmm. If you're going to say Shruti is the law, well, the law for us is whatever the pure devotee's experiencing is much more, much more what Krishna is to us than what. So, anyway. I thought it was that, that part about you that you mentioned at the beginning um, about the the audience. I thought that was really mm-hmm. interesting, uh, especially because I think like. His readers were, have probably read Shankaracharya's commentary in Sanskrit. Yeah. You know, so he's like not. For us, that's kind of because we just kind of hear about Shankaracharya as a sort of. But they've read him in order to have dismissed him. They're like, you know, like we might know what the. You know, some are, you know, that's far out. But. Yes. Um. So. So, so actually, this like effort to 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 say that it is shruti is like more for the audience and more for like making our sampradaya kind of look uh, um, like to represent our sampradaya to to the other sampradayas like that. While for us, like a smriti is. Is uh, equal in, in stature, right? That that's kind of one idea that I walked away from the study of the Tattvas and Darba with is mm. the defining line between Shruti and Smriti is it's a it's, there's a gray area there, mm-hmm. although others may look at it as a much more defined thing from the way from all the different books that were put forth and the way. It was presented. It seemed to me that uh, I think, it, and uh, as I said, a lot of of that is created by the fact that how much we hold the acharyas and the guru in in esteem plays a lot into that. So it's not like we want to take advantage wherever we can have advantage, and we don't really say, well, Krishna said it, so it has more power than what Jiva says or, or, or Sanatan says. You know, we're like, yeah, but that's, that's the only thing I can add there is it wasn't really spelled out in black and white by Jiva Goswami in the Tattva Sandarbha. Thank you so much.